Psalm 145, if you want to be turning there, making your way there. You know, this week, the past two weeks, there's been a lot of discussion about the things that have been happening up in Asbury at the college there. And people have flocked by the thousands to see and some to want to experience uh, what some call a revival. Others call it an outpouring of God's presence. But there's not all complete agreement on what is actually happening over there. And so it's just interesting to me that Last fall, when I was preparing this year-long study that we're going through on the attributes of God, how timely that God's Word today, the topic we would cover in the Word of God, is how God is imminent. The question of God's presence and how we understand that and know that as believers. And God's Word speaks to that. It gives us insight as we study these attributes and, and as we see and know Him as He is And it's this truth that is to govern your life and my life. It's this truth that we discover today that help us to understand what may be happening there, what might not be happening, and and why we should be discerning. You would agree with me, several weeks ago when we went through 1 Peter, we saw there that Peter said everything you and I need for life and godliness has been given to us by his divine power through the true knowledge of him. In other words, every time I go to the truth about who God is, which I find right here in this book, the Bible, it is clear, true, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it will not guide you astray. Listen, it tells us the truth about who God is and what He is like. And every time I open it, everything you need, everything I need for life and godliness is found in God speaking to us. That's why we open the book to hear Him speak, because... The knowledge of him is found here. And so listen, if that's true, everything I need, everything I need to experience him is found right here in this word. This book is alive. It's a mirror. What it does is it shows us who we are as it shows us who he is. And only when I see him as he truly is do I properly understand who I am. And the amazing thing for the believer is anytime I open this, wherever I find myself, I can experience God. I don't have to go here or there or pine for or long for or I wish I was having that experience that they're having. I can have that wherever I am. And we need to be discerning, church, and understand that. The believer who faithfully walks with the Lord each day can have as much of an experience as they are allegedly having in a protracted worship service. Listen, there are some who have traveled 17 hours driving to get to this revival or this experience. If they would just spend 17 minutes on their faces before God in His Word, they can have the same experience. Do you realize this? Every day, the experiences of life, the mundane things of life, we sang about just a moment ago. You can experience God in the simple things of taking care of your family day by day. I know, moms, sometimes it feels like they're just menial tasks, mundane things. But we can experience God even in that. You can experience Him in the factory or in the office. Listen, students, when you're studying for a test and loving God with all your mind, when we're sowing a seed of encouragement in someone's heart or just giving a listening ear to someone who has been through a a bad experience. Listen, God can be real to us in those moments and he can, we can come to know him as he is and speak life into the lives of others. We 
don't have to go from place to place. God is everywhere. He's present. And what we're studying today, last week we considered how God was transcendent, but this week we consider how God is imminent. And my experience and your experience is not anything less day by day is what may be happening at not just in Asbury, but at any concert or any event where everybody says, oh, wow, that was just an incredible experience of God. You and I can have that each day as we experience God's grace, God's mercy and his goodness. Now, here's what's wrong. Our nation desperately needs an awareness of God's presence. You'd agree with me, not only the nation, but even churches need an awareness of God's presence. Now, that's the case because we live in a land that has turned its back on God and on his word. And there's no longer a fear of God in the hearts and minds of men. And so as a result, there's no awareness that God is actually near and not far. This is why we're studying the attributes of God. This is why we're walking through passages of Scripture to know more about who God is and what He is like. And God reveals Himself in His Word as we studied. If you want to know God, you've got to know His works. And where His works are recorded are in the Word of God. So we study His works. They're honorable. They're glorious. They teach us the, the righteousness of God. They think, teach us who He is. And as I do that, I, I can experience the presence of God each and every day. Now, some would say, I just don't feel it, Pastor. Well, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 2. Several weeks ago, we were there when we talked about how to study God. If you and I will just incline our ear to hear what God might say today, lean in. He wants to speak to us. If we'll cry out to Him and say, Lord, I need some help. I'm kind of dense up here. I need some understanding. I need you to help me. And if I value that pursuit and like it really means something to me, then what the Proverbs told us, the wise man said over in chapter 2, is we'll learn two things about God. And it's not that we will feel, but we will discern, we will understand, we will know. We will know with assurance. Two things about Him. And it's these two things that we learned, one last week, one this week. The first thing we'll understand is the fear of the Lord. We'll know God is God and we're not. He's transcendent. And because we fear him, we reverence him, we stand back and we recognize you are who you say you are. And I desperately need you. The other thing that we'll know or discern is the knowledge of him. Now that word for knowledge there is an intimate knowledge. So see, not only is God so holy other, so high, so exalted, so transcendent as we learned last week. The other pole is this. He's also imminent. He's here. He's near and not far. Now, the definition of imminence is not the same as omnipresence. We get there in two weeks, okay? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Present and in all places. He has to be because he's infinite. What eminence is talking about is not God is present everywhere. What eminence is talking about is that God is within and present to his entire universe. What does that mean? It means this. He relates to us even though he's exalted, he's transcendent and so much higher than us. He's not distant and distinct to not know what's going on in your life and my life. Beloved, he knows every hair on your head and my head. He knows what we're thinking. We're going to learn this next week about his omniscience. He knows everything that we're thinking about, like lunch right now for some of you. He knows what you're thinking about, where you're going to go. 
So don't worry about that right now. He'll take care of that later. Amen? What he wants to know, what you and I to know, is he is near and not far. He is both transcendent and he's imminent. And though he is wholly distinct, he also relates to his creation and is present amongst it. In fact, the reason that you and I are still breathing right now is because he's the sustaining cause of all that's going on around us. Or as it says in the book of Acts, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. We're here because he allows us to be here. He's imminent, he's present, he's near. Now just think biblically for a moment before we dive into this psalm. Just biblically, Adam and Eve, when God made this created order, Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. They walked with him, they talked with him. But then sin spoiled that relationship. And after God made a covering for them, they were cast out of the, the Garden of Eden. And, and the relationship that we have with, with God now has to have a veil, separation between us. Because sinful man cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Moses, when he went up on Mount Sinai, he was, he was there with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And, and there was a cloud and, and God was speaking to him as man would speak face to face. But when Moses said, can I see you? God said, oh no, you can't see me. In fact, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock right here, and I'm going to pass by. And, and, and I'll shield you as I pass by so you don't die. And, and, and since then, men have, have God's presence went with them. His Shekinah glory there in the tabernacle, there in the temple. It was what distinguished the Israelites from all the other nations who had their little idols. The gods of, of this world, as we learned last week, they're mute. They're, they can't see. They can't speak. They can't do anything. But the presence of, of God was with his people. When Jesus came, God veiled that presence in flesh. And he walked among the disciples. And God's presence was there. Now, Peter, James, and John had an experience on a mountain, a mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured. And, and, and Elijah was there, and Moses was there, and Peter said, should we make some, some, some altars here? And, and, and then he heard the voice, no, this is my beloved son. And, and, and for a moment, Peter had an amazing experience. But what's fascinating is when you go over to, first, to, to 2 Peter chapter 1, what Peter says there is, listen, yeah, we were on the mountain, and we had an experience, and we heard the voice, but you and I have something even better than that experience of God's presence. What is it? The more sure word right here. And what Peter is saying is, listen, anytime you and I open this word, we can have that type of experience that he had on the mountain with Jesus when they heard the voice of God. In other words, you and I can hear the voice of God right here in this book. It's alive. It's living. The question is, am I inclining my ear to hear what it might have to say? Do I yearn to hear God speak is the most important thing for me. Because if I am, God will manifest himself, reveal himself to us, and we will sense and know the presence of God. The amazing thing for the believer is this. When you and I make a profession of faith, as Reagan has, where we have repented of our sin and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says that at that moment, when we are converted and born again, the Bible says that God's presence comes to dwell within us, the Spirit of God. Now, you don't get part of Him, and you don't get Him for part-time. He's all there, all the time. 
And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is there with us until we reach heaven. Praise the Lord. What that means is I'm not going from place to place having to experience God. Jacob thought that, by the way, in the Old Testament. He was running all over the place. And he came one night and laid his head down on a, on, a, on a pillow of a rock. And he lay down and he opened up his eyes in the, in the middle of the night. And he said, wow, look at that. There's a ladder here. Angels are going up and down. This must be the house of God. And God spoke to him and said, listen, I, um, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. That's my promise to you. By the way, that was before you were born. My promise when you were in the womb. My blessing is for you. You, you, you don't have to... You don't presume it upon me. You don't, I, you don't earn this. You don't deserve it. But I will be with you wherever you go. You see, some people think like that. I've got to get from this place to this place. I've got to have this experience here. This. No, 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 no. The Spirit of God dwells within the believer. The fullness of it. And I should live every day in that fullness of His presence. How do we do that? This is why the imminence of God is so essential to realize and recognize I need to look around and practice the presence of God. How do I do that? Well, it's really key. God's given us the tool to do that. He's given us his spirit and he's given us his word. And it's the word of God, listen, that opens my eyes. It illumines my eyes. The spirit gives me understanding of what he inspired others to write. And he helps me to apply it in my life. And when I repent of my selfish, stubborn ways and die to self, I find life in Christ. Or as Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who dwells within me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And every day as we die to self and we find life in Christ, that's revival right there. That's those who are dead and their trespasses in sin. That's those of us who are following and, and presenting ourselves as slaves of unrighteousness. That's a transformation that's taken place. I'm renewing my mind. It's amazing what James would say. James would say it this way. Did you know if we draw near to God, he will what? Draw near to us. You want to have revival? You want to experience that type of thing? Draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? In his word. And his word speaks to us and he will come near us in that sense and we will be aware of it. And it's the spirit who dwells in the believer that helps us to understand that. And then he leads us, he guides us, he directs us. Jesus said in John 14 and John 16, that's his job. That's what he does. He points you and points me to him, to Jesus. That's the role of the spirit. And so if we have a full understanding of God's word, an understanding of who he is, an understanding that God is transcendent so much higher, as we learned last week, and eminent within and present to his entire universe. That helps me to discern what's happening in the world around me and make sure that I'm grounded in the word, lashed to it, so that I'm not bobbing around in the waves trying to figure out what's going on around me. But I can have a peace and find joy no matter what the circumstances are around me. Because I know who my God is. And I'm rightly related to him. Well, what can we know about him? Well, we've talked about God being transcendent. That's how David starts here in Psalm 145. In Psalm 145, he starts with the transcendence of God. But then he moves that God is not so separated from us and distinct and so much higher than us. He actually is imminent and working around us. And has been working in his created order. 
Listen to how he says this. I will extol you, O my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. I drew a line right there in my Bible. Underline that whole phrase, his greatness is unsearchable. Because that is the celebration of a great and glorious God. Listen, who is the king, who is majestic and reigns on high. And his greatness is unsearchable. We've already discovered that. He's incomprehensible. You cannot plumb the depths of who he is and what he is like. You can go swimming for a little bit, but you and I can't get to the bottom of the ocean and understand just how awesome God is. But I'm grateful I can know a little bit. Amen? He is transcendent. He's not so much higher, so much loftier that we can't know him. Why? Because he's imminent. And how is he imminent? That's the, the latter half of every, all the rest of the psalm. How David now sings, and it's a beautiful in the Hebrew. What he did was he took the whole Hebrew alphabet. It's called an acrostic. And he just took, like we would say, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. He took alphabet again. He just took all the, uh, uh, not alphabet, that's the Greek, excuse me. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. He would walk down with the Hebrew letters. And he would just write a poem of, of song with all the Hebrew letters celebrating the awesomeness of God. You and I should do that in life. And David's doing it from the standpoint of this. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for who he is. And as you'll see, it's not just in the big things, but also in the mundane things of life. You and I should be praising him. Because he's not just transcendent, he's near. He's imminent. How so? Well, you see, we should praise the imminent God who is a God of redemption. Notice what happens in verses 4 through 9. Watch this. One generation shall praise your works to another. You want to notice that word work. And you shall declare his mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. That's the second time. Men shall speak of your mighty, of your awesome acts. That's the second time for that acts. And I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Watch this. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Now, five times he even mentioned the works of God or the acts of God. And so this is a celebration. Listen, God is transcendent. His greatness is unsearchable. He's so much higher than anything you and I could ever imagine. And yet... He acts in his creation. He's at work in his creation. In other words, when God made everything, and this is a celebration first and foremost of his creation work, that his glorious work glorifies him. And then we know that. David wrote Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everywhere you look, even if you want to deny it, how you are fearfully and wonderfully made, X or Y chromosome in our culture today, God has made us, and he's created all things. And it's a glorious thing that he has made, and it's worthy of praise. And David is celebrating that God's great work. He took his hands, and out of nothing, y'all, he made everything. Amazing. Go figure that one out. And when he made it, he saw that it was all good, very good at the end of the sixth day. Something that he intended for man to experience and enjoy. And it's not just a good work that he made, it's a glorious work. Now, his glorious splendor is just displayed everywhere. Are you looking for it? It's all around you. 
It's there. And you have to learn to look for it. It's, it's the unseen hand of God at work around us. Man, he paints the most beautiful sunsets. He makes the most beautiful, intricate designs of flowers. I mean, all of creation is speaking. He's there. He's there. He's near. He's not far. Watch him paint this today for us. Watch him bring forth life out of, out of a dead seed. Wow. It's amazing. Now, not only are those his works in creation, his wondrous works that he does, but the earth is filled with his glorious presence as he does this. Now, in verse 6, it talks about the awesome acts of God, the awesome works that he has done that should be declared, that should be testified of from generation to generation. In other words, listen, we have a responsibility to those that are younger to us, listen, to declare to them these wonderful works. The wonderful works of redemption, of this creation that God has made, and then the redemption that he has brought to it because we messed it all up. The awesome works of God in the Hebrew, whenever you see that term, the awesome works of God, it's always highlighting God's judgment at some points. Did you know when God is bringing redemption, he's also oftentimes judging something? And when you go and you look in the Old Testament, what you find there, whether it was with Noah, which is one of the first awesome acts that God did, is that this awesome creation that he made, he flooded all of it. Why? Well, because he had to destroy mankind that no longer thought about God any longer. And so he still had mercy in the midst of judgment. He didn't just save Noah and seven others, his, his three boys and their wives and his wife. No, no, you know who God was saving? The seed. The seed that would bring redemption to me and to you, Jesus, and keep his word. God brought judgment. He did an awesome act. His people went down to Israel. And while we're there, he did all these miraculous signs. And the one sign, that Passover death angel that, that went over Egypt at that time, anyone under the blood on the doorpost of their home was spared life. The firstborn didn't die. But if you weren't under the blood, the firstborn died. And God showed in that judgment he was going to bring redemption to his own people. And ultimately, it's a picture for us of the redemption that Jesus brings to us is he's the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. God led his people out of Egypt. And as he did, he walked in an amazing, awesome way. He opened up these waters called the Red Sea. His people walked through on dry ground. And then when they got on the other side, he brought the waters back over Pharaoh's army and destroyed the enemies of his people at that moment. What an awesome God. Preserving and saving and redeeming his people. He drew near to do that. Then, of course, we know you can just go all throughout the Old Testament and see it time and time again how God acts in redemption and often brings judgment at the same time. And as he does that, it's because he brings redemption to lost mankind. What an amazing God. You know he's done that for you and me too, amen? Do you realize when Jesus died on that cross... He not only brings redemption to lost mankind, but as that happens, he has to take the judgment of a holy God for sin. And he does that. He amazingly, at that cross, when Jesus died, he drank the cup of God's wrath every last drop. Praise the Lord. So that the penalty that your sin and my sin deserves, which is death, has been paid for, has been paid by his blood. And because he died, the eternal God, listen, came and offered that sacrifice in the Christ at the, at the cross. 
Beloved, we can have redemption for eternity. Praise the Lord. That's free. It's not deserved. It's freely given to any and all who call on him. And God did that for us. In fact, here's the picture when he works in this way. Do we deserve it? Does he owe that to us? Of course not. Notice what happens in verse 8 and 9. This is what God said of himself to Moses over in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is God's self-revelation of his nature, of who he is and what he's like. Moses recorded it for us. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his mercies, his tender mercies over all his works. You see, when God shows this goodness, this grace, this mercy that no one deserves, and yet he gives that freely, salvation is a good thing. Amen? Redemption is a gracious thing, a merciful thing. It's something that we don't deserve. You see, even though God is so great, he's also good. Listen, if he was just great but not good, he'd be a despot ruling. If he was just good but not great, he may not have the power in his greatness to save us. He's both. And what happens is, listen, we can experience that gracious goodness. We can experience because it's freely given. Because God shows mercy and he's gracious and he has compassion. He's mindful of who we are. And when he spoke to Moses and he revealed this about himself, it's this testimony of God that's repeated time and time again in the prophets and in the Psalms. And it's a celebration of a God who brings redemption, even when mankind doesn't deserve it, like you and me. Praise the Lord this morning. Listen, do you realize God is gracious towards us, long-suffering, forbearing? Why, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, verse 4? Listen, why? Because he wants us to repent, to turn towards him and experience his redemption. Now, God isn't just a God of redemption, an imminent God who's bringing redemption to mankind. He's also the imminent God who reigns. Notice this in verses 10 down through verses, uh, verse uh, 13. Watch this. You're going to circle this several times. You're going to see this word over and over again. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. Why? They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. They shall make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. What's the emphasis on? We have a God who reigns, a God who rules, a God whose kingdom, listen, not only will be established, but he reigns and rules right now. We're living for, looking for the establishment of the kingdom that Jesus will put on this earth. Amen? Our God is a wonderful king. He's a warrior king. And he has promised us, listen, that one day he will come and will reign on this earth for a thousand years. And it's a glorious kingdom. In fact, that's what we celebrate even as believers now. We once had our little scepters, our little scepters and our little tiaras and crowns. And we thought we ruled our kingdom. We thought our kingdom was so great. And then we were exposed and we realized, I can't keep this kingdom going. Listen, it can be our businesses. It can be our life. It can be our family. We can think, this is my little kingdom I reign and rule over. Listen, you and I need to realize we need to put down our little scepters and take our crowns off and... Accept the invitation to be a part of his kingdom. It's so much bigger and it lasts forever. And you and I are invited to be a part of his kingdom. 
He reigns and he rules. That's what we celebrate in his transcendency. We can't even imagine that reign and that rule. But that reign and rule is real right now. In fact, when Jesus came, he said this. In Mark chapter 1, when he burst on the scene, he said this. Here, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? The king was right there. He was right in their midst. And for you and I who are his disciples, who put down our scepters and took off our crowns and bent the knee and said, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy. I want to put my trust in you, Jesus, as my Savior. And I want to accept your invitation to be a part of your kingdom. The amazing thing is we become heirs and joint heirs of that kingdom. In fact, as believers, according to the Sermon on the Mount, every day as his disciples, what should we be doing? We should be seeking first what? The kingdom of God and the righteousness that goes along with it. That's the way we live as believers. Did you know when you and I are living righteously, man, God is real. God's real in your life. The way I treat my spouse, the way I treat my children, the way I treat my coworkers or my employees, the way I relate to them doing the right things, who defines what's right? God does. He's righteous. And so when I live my life that way, man, God is real. God is real. And when I'm surrendering to his reign, to his authority in my life, God is real and he's near. You won't feel that, by the way, when you and I rebel against him and shake our fists at him and don't surrender to him. Don't expect to experience the the joy and the peace of his presence because we're living in rebellion to him. He came so we would put down our little scepters and no longer rebel against him. It's the invitation of Psalm chapter 2. Hey, listen, while there's time, don't shake your fist at me, but kiss the sun. Do homage to the sun, lest he be angry with you. You see, he reigns and rules. And everyone has to make a decision for yourself. Will you bend the knee and declare this? Ready? Jesus is Lord. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Lord, he reigns. And so David is just singing about it. We're to be singing about this kingdom. We're to be singing about his majesty. We're to be singing and talking about his power. Well, do you do that on a daily basis? I mean, listen, sometimes we're so caught up in our kingdoms, we don't see his kingdom at work. We, we, it's obscured because we're caught with the glimmer and glamour of all that this world seemingly says, oh, this is what you need. But, beloved, it doesn't last this kingdoms, these kingdoms that, that, that we're a part of down here on this earth, they will not last forever. His is an eternal, everlasting kingdom. By the way, no one's going to boot him off his throne. There's never going to be some coup against him. There was one of those once. And God said, ah, get on out of my heaven, right? Satan and the angels that followed him. The one-third swept away. You see, this is... The truth that we have, God is imminent in that he has made all things and he sustains his, redem- his, 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 his creation and, and he is redeeming it. And, and God is also reigning in it and over it. And you and I should live each day recognizing that imminent presence, looking for it around us and in us and around us. Now, listen, let's just be honest. There's sometimes that we don't feel like he's present. Be honest. There are some seasons where you and I go through our spiritual journey where it's lean. You know what I'm talking about. The days are dark. Is God any less present than he was before? Oh, no. No. 
In fact, listen, the moment you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, man, it's like mountaintop, amen? Praise Jesus. He saved me from my sin. I'm free. But then you go on that journey. It's just like being married. You're excited. Man, I've got this beautiful bride. Praise the Lord. But listen, there's mountaintop experiences and there's valley experiences in that too. Does that mean I'm any less her husband or she's any less my bride? No. Oh, no. She's near. I'm near. In fact, some, there's some couples here will tell you after 50, 60 years how joyous, how precious, how sweet marriage is because of all the trials you've walked through together. And there's been some lean moments in those, if we're honest, about marriage. You see, in our relationship with the Father in heaven, through His Son, empowered by His Spirit, there are moments where it feels dark or it means lean. And here's what David now writes about. Listen, I need this guidebook right here to guide me in the journey for the valleys and for the mountaintops. So that when I don't feel he's near, I'm not governed by my feelings. I'm governed by truth, what it says in the word. Now, this is what we need because we're all going to have these types of experiences that David's going to outline. When I don't sense his presence, listen, it could be because I have unconfessed sin in my life. If I have unconfessed sin and I'm grieving the Spirit of God because I'm not yielding, I'm not surrendering, I shouldn't expect to have joy and peace and, because I'm, not, I'm living in disobedience to God. That's one reason why you not, may not feel God is imminent and present. It may be, though, because there's moments of testing. There's moments where God is stretching our faith or squeezing us in a vice. And he's allowing those circumstances in your life and my life. Why? To see, listen, the genuineness of our faith, to refine it. James will talk about it over in James chapter 1. Beloved, when you encounter various trials, rejoice. Rejoice in tribulation. Rejoice in difficulty. Yeah. God's near. He's not far. He's near. His word promises these things. And he shows us these things time and time again. He may be allowing this, listen, so that as we're squeezed, as we go through that trial, there's a testimony for both us and for others to see and know. Watch how God supplies. You see, watch this in verse 14 and 15, 16. The Lord upholds all who fall. Raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you. And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. You see, the picture is, listen, God's transcendent. His greatness is unsearchable. You can't understand it. And yet, for those that are crying out for help, those who are hungry, God opens his hand and supplies. What a beautiful picture. He's near. He's not far. In fact, sometimes we don't have because we don't ask, James would say. He's right there to supply. Beloved, if he takes care of those little birds hopping around at Walmart and Food Lion and feeds them, how much more valuable, how much more precious are you to care for you? Man, what an amazing God. Who am I that you even take thought of me? He does. Oh, wow. Man, I can lay my head on my pillow at night and know that when I have need, my eyes look expectantly to you. Here's the problem. We're trying to go through life, trying to figure it out on ourselves and manipulate things, and we're not looking expectantly for him to do anything. Of course he doesn't seem like he's near. He doesn't seem like he's present. We're not even looking to him, expecting him to bless. Didn't we already identify him as gracious? 
I mean, isn't the nature of a gracious God, by the way, who's eternally gracious, you're never going to wake up one morning and he's going to change. He's just always going to be the same. Praise God for that. (laughs) He doesn't shift his shadows, as it says in James. No, 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 no. I look, I expect God. I don't have the answers. I can't do this, but God, I believe you can. In fact, I know I can trust you. I mean, is he a good shepherd or not? I mean, I shall not want. Is it true or not? Yes. He's a good shepherd. He hears the voice of his, of his sheep when we plead. And when we cry and we plead. And he helps the weak. And he feeds the world. Any who's hungry, any who need help, they're fallen. they got to get up. I think he said that in the Psalms too. For the cast sheep, he restores our soul. Wow. He doesn't just help us. But he also hears our prayers. Look at verses 18, 19. This is the verse we're memorizing this week as we're just meditating on the God who is near. Near to those who cry out to him. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. And he will also hear their cry and save them. In the margin of your Bible, write this. Psalm 73, 28. Psalm 73, 28. You know what David said over there? The nearness of my God is my good. I call out to a gracious God and he's near and he supplies. You know, he will not withhold any good thing from those who seek him, the righteous. He's not going to withhold anything from you and I that he knows you and I don't need. He's the supplier. And when we pray aright, how do we pray aright? Hmm. Well, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. When I pray a right, it's out of reverence. He's God, I'm not. He's got everything, I got nothing. I need you. That's good reverence. God, I need you. You need him today, if you're honest with yourself. That's why we get on the altar. God, I need you. I ain't got it. I need it. And I don't own it. You own it all. You made it. Sustain me, strengthen me, supply for me. Any and every grace, it all comes from him. Now, reverence means I'm not going to presume upon him, you owe me. You owe me. I made a, Some people go through, well, you know, I'm a believer now. He owes me. He doesn't owe us anything, y'all. But man, he's a good father. And he supplies graciously. Reverence him says, I don't ask beyond what he knows I need. I just trust him. And I don't ask rashly. But I come, I ask, I seek, I knock. Why? Because I know the nature of him. He's gracious. He's good. He's got the power to do it. He sustains us. And not just that, he doesn't just hear my prayers according to verse 20. He protects us. This is the compliment of fearing him. Notice this in verse 20. The Lord preserves all those who love him, and, but all the wicked he will destroy. I mean, this is the parallel. I reverence him. I know who I need to ask. I love him. He preserves. I mean, that's why I love what Paul would say, right? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Anything? No peril, no sword, no pestilence. None of those things. Why? Because we're protected by him. You're in his hand, sealed by his spirit. You are safe. You are secure as a believer of God. If you don't have that peace and assurance today, then get it. Come and see. Realize there's a hand of mercy that reaches right to you. Come take it. Say, I need that today. Now see, the wicked, they don't fear. They'll be destroyed. They don't reverence. They'll be destroyed. I mean, that's a choice you have to make. Do I reverence God? He's God. I'm not. I need to put my faith in him, my trust in him. And man, when you do, man, you love him. I mean, that fear, that love, that's what it said over in Proverbs chapter 2. 
When you come to know him, you discover the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of, the, uh, uh, of God. The fear, the knowledge is intimate knowledge. And what do you do? You just praise him. You praise him as it says in verse 21. You praise him. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. That's how David started the psalm and he ends it the same way. And that's how you and I should begin our journey with God and end our journey with God. Always praising him. Praising him why? Because it's his presence that brings joy, that brings peace. And that is possible even in some of the darkest experiences of your life. Because if there's a gentle and good shepherd who walks with us. You can have a shalom, a calmness, a certainty that even when the sea is raging around you, you can be still and know he's God and rest. Why? He will be glorified. He will. And he will graciously supply because he's near and not far. I don't have to go somewhere special to seek his presence. I'm called to worship him where I am and to live guided by his ever-present Holy Spirit. How do I do that? I, I listen to him speak in his word. I change my life. I renew my mind. I put off old and I put on new. That's revival. And that's something that should be experienced each and every day. Now listen, last thing and we got to go. Listen, Isaiah 55, 6 is a warning. It's a very important warning for us. Isaiah 55, 6. Isaiah tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Because in the flood of many waters, he won't be heard. Those people banged on the doors of the ark. Let us in, let us in, let us in. It's raining. They've never seen it before. The waters are rising too late. They had their invitation. They had their chance. You see, God is extending this merciful invitation to us, this gracious invitation. Just come, taste and see. I'm good. Look what I've, how much love I've shown you. My son has died for you on a cross. What more do I need to do? And so you and I just need to come. While there's time, while he may be found, none of us has promised tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation. We call because this hand of mercy reaches towards us. And as we learned in from Acts 7, 17 just a couple weeks ago, God drew our boundaries today here on Chipley Ford Road. In this age, this day in which we live, He drew that. Why? So that you and I would reach for Him. But He's not far from us, Paul said. No, He's imminent. He's near. Have you reached for Him? Are you, have you reached and are you in His hands? As a believer, are you practicing the presence of God each day? Looking, looking for the unseen hand, expecting God to answer, believing that, opening his word. God, speak to me. You've got to speak to me. I want to hear you speak. Treasuring what he says because he's reaching, beloved, and he's saying, come.